Welcome to Four Speed Ahead. I'm Craig Fuller here with Will O'Donnell, the managing partner at ProLogis Ventures. Will, you run a venture investment arm inside of ProLogis. Um, seems like an odd place to be a venture capitalist. What was the purpose of setting up ProLogis Ventures, and what type of businesses do you guys like to invest in? Really? Good question, Craig, and thank you for having me on today. It's uh, always a pleasure to have a conversation with you. So, starting with, we launched Prologis Ventures back in 2016, and it was really around, at that point, we were starting to see a lot of disruption and change starting to happen, both with property technology, but then also with supply chain and logistics. Uh, so, from our perspective, venture investing presented an opportunity for us to really get ahead of what's next understand where disruption was going to occur, and both how we as a company could improve and enhance our core business operations. So how do we operate real estate more efficiently? How do we purchase, buy, or develop real estate? Um, and how do we really enhance our decision-making with data? But even more importantly, where was change going to happen that would impact our customers and their underlying business? Um, and you were starting to see the emergence of, of data um, and the focal point of really data analytics and, and AI, autonomy, both within the warehouse with automation and robotics, but also in vehicles. Uh, how would that influence the use of real estate and changes within supply chain? E-commerce has obviously been a big focal point in the last couple of years. And we really could see started some of the changes starting to happen there and, and want to be under ahead of it and understanding what the impact things like urban and last mile delivery would have on how cu our customers we're looking at real estate decisions. Um, so venture was really our, our foray into helping drive the industry and understand what change was going to happen and how we as a company could be ahead of what was occurring. And to use the, the Gretzky uh, quote, we, we didn't want to be where the puck is. We wanted to skate where the puck was going to be. Got it. And, and you know, Will, in terms of disclosure to the audience, ProLivis is yeah. a, an investor inside of FreightWaves, uh, is a large investor inside of FreightWaves. So, you have a board seat inside the company. Um, so I've gotten to experience firsthand how Prologis treats venture investing uh, differently than what a lot of corporations do. Uh, a lot of companies get accused of having venture arms, but they're nothing more than sort of a, an R&D shop for potential acquisitions. But Prologis has actually institutionalized the venture process and, and actually treats your venture group as a uh, an investment vehicle, much more so than a just a strategic arm of the of an R and D arm of the company. No, that's correct, and I think part of it is that um, we are an investment company, so we are focused on making the best real estate investments that we can, and really serving our customers with the, the value that we as a large company can bring. And I think we brought that same mentality to venture investing. So how can we, uh, as a venture investor, understand where we can make a difference? How do we leverage our scale? How do we leverage our customer base? How do we leverage our platform and our, our really our employees to help drive value for our portfolio companies? And then, and then also, for ultimately for us inside the company, how do we make better decisions? And then our customers. Uh, and that's where we've taken a very customer-centric approach to where are the biggest pain points in the industry, whether it's transportation, whether it's labor, um, whether it's the emergence of e-commerce and what that does, does to supply chains. And with those thesis have gone out and found the best and breed companies that we can partner, partner with to help bring their products to market and really drive change through this industry. 
Now you guys are, are looking at uh, through the pro lodges lens as big as you are mm-hmm. and as, as large as your scope is, you're able to get intelligence on the market. You apply that in your venture thesis. Uh, but venture yeah. is an industry that, you know, venture capital investing is an industry where oftentimes VCs are betting on sort of exponential outcomes or, you know, the 10 or hundred X or thousand X returns. That isn't the type of investing uh, that Prologis is historically known for. I'm wondering when you're looking at the investment thesis, how do you balance the, the need to obviously uh, protect the capital of the company, but also take advantage of the opportunities that are available to you? I think that a lot comes down to the embedded knowledge that a investor has. Um, so part of the reason why venture investors look for the 100x returns is obviously that's exciting. You make a lot of money. Uh, but it's also because you're making a lot of other bets that may not work out. Um, we really look where we can bring value is our deep understanding of supply chain logistics and really understanding where the business pain points are and being able to apply technology to help solve those. So I think our thesis is starting with this deep knowledge. We're able to really understand where we should be putting capital. Um, and with our scale and portfolio and platform, we're able to help con- companies accelerate. And we have an ability to bring products at a growth stage to market faster because we have these direct relationships and large platform to scale. So to some degree, I think, Craig, when you get into an industry like supply chain and logistics, there's a deep embedded knowledge of, if it's complicated. I mean, you're, you're, you know it better than anyone. It's not something that with one day you can go out and figure out with the trucking industry. Uh, but by understanding it and living it, you're really better able to figure out where technology could be brought in and truly solve problems. And I think that's one of the big advantages that we have is that deep understanding of the space and how we can connect the right people together uh, and truly what's worth solving. So, Will, obviously return on investment is very important to the organization, but the role that ProLogis Ventures plays inside of the company has also an impact on how you work with customers and what experiences and the value you bring to your customer relationships. Can you talk a little bit about how ProLogis Ventures is involved in those customer relationships? Yeah, it's a good question. And it's it's something that we've spent a lot of time thinking about. And historically, real estate is an interesting industry, and it's very transactionally based specifically around the real, real estate lease. So if you think how most companies, real estate companies think about it is you'll negotiate a lease and then you can take a very passive relationship with your customer where they're sending you rent checks every month. We looked at it very differently where we have an opportunity to really increase the value for our customers during that time. So you start with a move-in process and someone's moving into a warehouse, which is essentially just four walls and a roof. They have to make decisions about, okay, I need racking. I need a network connection. I need to go procure forklifts. Um, I have handheld scanners. I've got to go fit out my warehouse with all the office equipment. There's a lot of buying decisions that come in, and even the services you need to procure, whether it's pest control or janitorial, HVAC maintenance. We have an ability to create a marketplace to really bring best-in-class partners together and make it very easy for our customers and use our scale and volume to really drive down pricing and create value in that way. So a lot of our venture investing has been focused on where are opportunities for us to add value for our customers. 
um, and what products or services really on the cutting edge can we start developing and piloting now? Um, so next generation, our customers will have access to best-in-class technologies. So a couple sorry. examples of how that, yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead, sorry. I was going to say a couple examples of how that works. Like we have a labs um, where we'll bring best class technologies in there and start testing. So one of the areas we've been recently uh, running some pilots around is autonomous forklifts. And in that case, we're actually partnering with that with some of our customers to run tests based on their uh, operations and what it would be like to run a bunch of these vendors through the gamut and understand who is going to be able to be successful in our customer's environment. Um, so that's an example there, but it's it's something for us, the customer relations are absolutely paramount. And it's one of the advantages I think that we have as a venture investor is that we spend a lot of time sitting with our customers and listening to what their needs are. And we're going out and making investments. We really understand what our customers are trying to solve and we actually engage them a lot of times in the due diligence of companies to help us make educated decisions on where we should be putting capital. So, well, I, I obviously understand what, when you talk about what happens inside the warehouse and the importance of the value that you guys are bringing uh, to your customers inside the warehouse. But two of the investments that I know, one, obviously, FreightWaves is a data and media com company that serves the freight industry. But you also invested in a company called Platform Science, which is a onboard computing uh, uh, omnibus, if you will, for over-the-road trucking, which isn't in the warehouse. I'm curious, mm -hmm. those investments seem a little bit more on what happens outside the warehouse than what happens in. Yeah, it's a good question. And I think with that, Craig, as you're aware, that trucking is an $800 billion spend in the United States, and it's about 50% of supply chain costs. So historically, when customers are looking at locating warehouses, transportation costs are a key component in that site selection process. There's also a lot of inefficiencies that we've been exploring where how do trucks better interact with warehouses? And you've got complaints around dwell time, detention. Um, if we can invest and figure out ways to narrow that gap and create more efficiencies and visibility and provide better data, there's a huge value to our customers just because the amount of spend on transportation is just exponentially larger than the rent. And in fact, the way we're looking at it, for every dollar in rent, they spend 10 on transportation. So if there's anything that we can do as a provider of real estate to help lower that cost, there's a huge value that we're bringing to our customer. So, Will, I, I, you're on the front end, uh, you know, inside of Prologis, you're one of the folks that gets to think about the future. See yeah. a lot of new age technologies that come, a lot of companies that pitch you. You know, COVID-19 has had a tremendous impact on society, yeah. uh, just in terms of how we live and how we receive products. What is it in terms of your expectations sitting inside of Prologis that you think the future is going to look like? How do we shape the future, not only of logistics, but of society? <laughs> um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you that question after I go through my answer. I, I know I saved the but... easy one for middle of the conference. Yeah, no, so, but it, yeah. it's, it, it's, it's an interesting one. And I think COVID is um, obviously a, a part of what's happening now with our society. You've obviously got another, a, a lot of other items with social unrest. We have an election going on that just created a lot of uncertainty in the world today. I think what we've specifically seen with COVID 
in 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 the implications of it on a stay-at-home economy, a working economy. My kids are at I guess school at home right now. Is it really drove uh, a couple things? One, e-commerce penetration at the end of 2019 was about 15% of retail sales. Uh, it was over 25% in April. Uh, so it really accelerated a lot of the trends uh, that were already happening with the shift from a traditional brick and mortar to more and more people buying online. Um, the other aspect that we really have seen, I think COVID's part of this with the tariffs and some of the political, um, I guess, and strife or entanglements that we were engaged in, is also people were really looking at their inventory. Um, and you started over the last decade or two, moving to just-in-time inventory. We started seeing our customers more look at I may need to have more buffer in it. I need to have a more resilient supply chain. And that we're starting to see the inventory stocks increase back up to allow for more flexibility in the supply chain. Um, a third trend that we're really starting to see is the restructuring of supply chain. And by that, people are starting to onshore manufacturing or become up with duplicative locations. So it's not gonna be a single source anymore on production. Um, it's going to shift to the multiple locations so people have resiliency in case something falls down. We're continually hit by natural disasters or pandemics, and people need that flexibility and resilience in their supply chain. And finally, it just really placed an importance on supply chain and how crucial it is to our economy and be able to function without a, a flexible, resilient supply chain, we, I mean, we wouldn't be able to be working from home. We wouldn't get our groceries. We wouldn't get our essential goods. Uh, and it's allowed us as a society and economy, obviously, it's not perfect, but we could function in this environment. Um, but it's it's forced a lot of change. And the way we looked at it as a company, too, is that what would probably have taken five years for digitization uh, is happening in six months. And our customers' expectations are changing and things that we may have spent a lot of time, okay, we've got to think through and pilot. We're just doing, and we're putting in place, and it's really expedited the speed of change. Uh, so I, I think it's obviously been a very difficult situation, but I think there are a lot of silver linings, and forcing a lot of the change that was necessary just to happen faster because it it removed the, the, the ability to deliberate on it. You just needed to execute uh, in order to put yourself in the right position. Yeah, it seems like it took 10 years of technology evolution uh, and compressed it into a couple of months. And we're still living with that. You know, Prologis has a global footprint. You guys uh, have operations in Asia. I'm sure that you were impacted or at least saw activity related to uh, COVID-19 prior to when it came into the U.S. Is that something that, that you guys were tracking uh, before it came on our shores? Yeah, it is, and it's something that we have um, a very big presence in China, uh, and specifically, we, we do have a presence in Wuhan, too. So as a company, uh, both from an employee safety standpoint um, and understanding what the potential implications were there in a work-from-home environment, we were fortunate to be well ahead of the curve, um, and we could sense what was both happening on a global supply chain standpoint, but then also what we as a company would potentially need to do in order to continue to operate. Um, so it's 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 one of the benefits of a global platform is that we get to see around some of the corners and see some leading indicators. 
and then more nimble and flexible enough that we really can adjust on the fly. So, and what putting, is I mean, to, to turn the question on you, actually, I'm going <laughs> to flip this on you. I mean, how have you seen the changes, especially kind of from a transportation freight standpoint, um, and how people on, on that side were rejiggering or repositioning their supply chains in order to accommodate what was happening? Yeah, it's interesting. I So having both the benefit of being a transportation professional in my past and run, you know, uh, had been involved in trucking and we track a lot of data and news, yeah. uh, but also have a media outlet, which is constantly looking at data and looking at information and intelligence. We were actually very early on understanding that COVID-19 as early as January, we're going to have a, an impact on, yeah. uh, you know, uh, on this year. I, I don't think anyone uh, expected it to be uh, as to, to, to create back in January to create these changes in, in the United States as they do now. I remember it was February 22nd. The only reason I remember this, I've gotten into the debate with my dad about, uh, you know, could you have known this was going to happen? And I actually ordered 40 yeah. cases of rice and masks on February 22nd, because I had the Amazon receipt, uh, because I was sort of concerned of what may take place. We, you know, we saw what happened in China uh, from our news uh, information yeah. and, and our data. We, we were able to see what happened in Europe, and we knew how it was going to play out here in the U.S. And what's interesting about it is um, the, 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 the transportation industry has had to respond to this. So if you look at March, you saw this massive surge uh, and relief supplies and groceries and, and the trucking industry and the freight industry was just bringing a lot of those supplies in and was on the front lines. And then we saw the market deteriorate. I mean, we, we had basically seen yeah. the worst freight market, uh, worse than any holiday that we've ever tracked in our data sets, which are, you know, a couple of years old. And we, we just have saw, saw this massive boom and bust cycle. It looks like, you know, like what you saw, you know, the reverse of what you see in the stock market right now. And so, it was a pretty gut-wrenching experience to have sort of this super high and the super low. And it was in mid-April when it became obvious that what was going to shut down had shut down. And we looked at mm -hmm. it and said, we believe the market's going to turn. The worst is over with. And it was basically mid-April. And since then, we've seen an acceleration in freight demand, and it hasn't stopped. You know, our index in terms yeah. of uh, volume index – uh, I, I in, in March had gotten up to twelve thousand. Had never been that high. It's over sixteen thousand today. It has accelerated wow. so fast in terms of demand. And I don't think it's just uh, you know. There's an argument that you have the supply chain refiguring. You have this network instability that's created. Some of that is probably true. Uh, but but it's also what you mentioned. It's inventories. It's import. It's it's companies dealing with managing, you know, bringing in new inventory to develop new supply chain resiliency. It's it's all of that you described and more. It's a shift in consumer spending from travel and experiences to buying hard goods. I mean, I, I know this living in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and I know you're from San Francisco, but you have a lot of family in, in other states in the country and you have friends. You know, here in Chattanooga, you can't get a home um, that, that the, the real estate market is – is on fire so much that homes aren't sitting on the market for more than a month, a month and a half. It's never been wow. this dynamic. And you talk to real estate agents and they, they're talking about they've never seen a market like this. And so when I think about what's happening, you know, we're a beneficiary in some ways 
of people leaving cities like San Francisco and New York. And I'm not going to get into a discussion of whether, you know, <laughs> New York is over because my wife's from there and she gets mad if I say that. Um, but there is this sort of uh, desire, I think, for people to take advantage of living elsewhere. You know, in Chattanooga, mm-hmm. we have the fastest internet in North America. A lot of people don't realize that, but you can actually get 10 gigabytes to your home and we're known wow. as an outdoor city. So we have people moving from all over the country that are finding that they can get things, you know, they can get a really nice house with high speed internet, and, you know, uh, low cost of living and work from anywhere. And I think that starts to reshape the economy overall. And, um, you know, we've talked a lot about uh, in, in the past about what happens to the shopping centers. Do they turn into fulfillment yeah. centers? I'm curious, what are you, where do you see all that headed? Yeah, I think, I think on a base level for us, the focus in this switch to each e-commerce is, is obviously driving demand for our property type. So we've done a study, and for every 100 basis points in shift of consumer spending from traditional retail to e-commerce, it equates to about 46 million square feet in industrial space needs. Um, so there is a tailwind that we're riding right now as this happens. Um, our focus has also been buying around consumption because consumption generally could shift around, uh, but people are still going to need goods to deliver to their house regardless of where they're they're living. So I think it's 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 a fascinating environment right now because there is a lot of change uh, and there's a lot of uncertainty, but it's it, it is going to drive demand for, I mean, our expectations have now changed as consumers that we do expect things same day, next day, and be able to buy things online and be able to work from home. Um, And it's really going to drive demand for both industrial real estate, but then also transportation. Because at the end of the day, if you think of of one of the benefits of, of traditional retail or from a retailer standpoint is I would get in my car and drive to the store and pick it up and then bring it home. So I was my own last mile delivery. If I'm sitting at home, the, the, the impetus has changed and someone's got to bring it to me in order for that to function. Now you have people trying to do curbside pickup, you have different models, or, but it is going to drive demand for the logistics industry. It's just that providers are going to have to shift and accommodate these new models. And that's part of what's exciting about my role as a venture investment investor is that we're at the forefront of understanding what that will be. And then with a progressive company like Prologis, who can really help influence change, we have the opportunity to partner with people across the industry to really help consumers and, and, and ultimately everyone's customers, us as people at home, to be able to survive in this evolving world and give people the flexibility to move around to different areas of the country and understand that they're still going to get the benefits that they would living in the New York City. So, well, a lot of discussions about, is this permanent? Is this semi-permanent? You know, a mutual friend of ours, Ernest Sweat, and I were talking a few months ago on, on this show, uh, not this conference, but Four Speed Ahead, about, you know, his theory was it wasn't permanent, that the, uh, you know, we're all going to be headed back to the office and this sort of shift from work from home is not permanent. I'm curious, where do you sit in this? These changes we've talked about, society, this technology acceleration, uh, is this a more permanent fixture, do you think? Uh, or do you think that uh, we're going to eventually go back to living lives the way we did before? Um, I, I think it's going to be a combination of both, that 
I think that it's opened up the possibility and the understanding of what could be done. So if you think of how many times that we've traveled for meetings, fly to a different city to attend an hour meeting that frankly, now a lot of us realize that you could probably do that over Zoom, um, that will influence how we do business. But at the end of the day, the human contact is an important part of it. And I think you watch when cities start opening up, people pretty quickly go back to where they were, where they're going out to dinner. Humans have a need to socialize. Um, and although we can get business done uh, through Zoom and other technologies, the ability to sit in a room and brainstorm with people and really be creative, I think that is what is lacking um, in the current environment. So I think it's going to be a hybrid that people will go back and it will have some normalcy. But people also realize what's possible. And in, in, in the Bay Area, people used to do hour and a half commutes and they had all these Google buses driving people around. I could foresee that two to three, four days a week, people are doing that and they're working from home one to two days because they now realize that that's possible. Um, so there's going to be some habits are formed out of this where people are going to continue to buy more and more online. Uh, but at the end of the day, there is a joy that people get at going into retail and actually seeing product. And I think as a seller, you need to be able to offer both now. And you need to be able to have an e-commerce solution. You need to have an in-person solution and delight your consumer in both ways. And as a provider of logistics real estate, I mean, that's one of the things we're trying to figure out how this is going to evolve and how we can really help our customers achieve those goals and, and ultimately be successful. And one of the things the industry is trying to figure out is – you know, this massive surge in volume, what is causing it? And there's a lot of theories to that. And I don't know that anyone has the exact answer, uh, but everyone's trying to get a handle on how much of this is permanent. And when do we, you know, truckers, transportation professionals are used to the boom and bust cycle. What goes up and sort of the theory must go down. And so there's always this sort of question that keeps recurring about when, not if, does it change. I, I, for one, question whether it has to revert back to the way it was. Do volumes have to drop? You've mentioned a couple of reasons why you could make the case that they wouldn't. You've talked about permanent onshoring. You've talked about resilient supply chains. Beyond just anecdotal evidence, do you guys have anything substantive to say that this is a more permanent fixture of our economy and these volumes that transportation companies are benefiting from will stay with us? Or, or is it still yet to be determine what that means? Um, I, I think, I mean, if you look through the data and you have better data than anyone, but there's more goods moving around and, and you need to place inventory closer to consumption, um, which relies heavier on transportation to get it there. Um, so I think one of the questions we be interesting for you, Craig, is when you're looking at it, like there's obviously fluctuations that go up and down but where's the baseline going? And I think what you're really asking is what's the underlying driver behind that baseline and how permanent it is. And I think from our perspective, we're seeing an increase in e-commerce, which drives more space needs, but it also, you have uh, skew proliferation, people expect more customization, and they expect things just in time, um, which all leads to more transportation to get the goods that to where they need to be. I think secondly, if inventory starts increasing back up to account for a more resilient supply chain, again, that would increase volumes of, of goods that need to be moved around. Um, so 
it'll be interesting. I mean, it's hard to predict the future in a time like this, but I think people are habitual creatures. And if you can learn how to uh, buy things differently or, or, or interact differently and it's convenient, people will do it. And at the end of the day, convenience is what drives a lot of decisions. So why was Uber successful in San Francisco? Because I didn't have to wait for a cab anymore. I could just hit a button and it would come to my house. And suddenly, instead of waiting for 20 minutes and three minutes, a cab would pick me up. And it really took off because of the convenience factor. And that's where e-commerce is convenient and, and consumers' expectations of being able to have the inventory they want when they want, which is going to drive freight volumes, is convenient. And, and that's why, for me and other people, it's a better option. Now, Will, one thing you pointed out or you mentioned was when, as e-commerce takes on a, a larger share of retail spending, uh, it drives a lot more footage in terms of square feet, industrial real estate. Can you unpack that a bit more? Yeah. So we see it's about three to three and a half times um, the square footage that's needed for a um, industrial e-commerce center versus a traditional retail brick and mortar center. And an easy way to think about it is traditionally in a retail network, a lot of the inventory is being uh, is sitting in the stores uh, versus in e-commerce, it's centralized. So the data we've seen is about three and a half, three to three and a half times. Um, so a, a about a billion square feet, uh, sorry, a billion dollars worth of retail spending in a traditional brick and mortar setting would be about 350,000 square feet and a e-commerce would be about uh, a million square feet of space that would be needed. That's amazing. So you're saying that basically the, the local Walmart or the Best Buy that's near my house is nothing more than a, a retail storefront with a warehouse attached to it, essentially, or, or better yet, a warehouse attached with a retail with some clerks and some help, you know, but at the end of the day, these are warehouses. And what you're talking about is sort of a, dis, a redistribution of those goods uh, into warehouse uh, footage, square footage. Yeah. And and if you look at Walmart and everyone are doing, they're also a, a big area that we see our retailers focusing on is inventory stockouts. So they want to make sure when you go into a Walmart or a Target or a Best Buy or, or Home Depot, that the inventory that you want to buy on that trip is there. Um, so even in traditional retail, a lot of effort and capital investment is being spent in understanding demand planning so they can make sure that the product that Craig wants is in store when you go there. So um, if someone were... Then, yeah. Go ahead, sorry. I was going to say, which is also then influencing transportation and how the people think about it, because you need to bring those goods in a more real-time basis um, to the, the in-store experience so it's there when you need it. So, so Will, appreciate you coming in today, being a part of this experience. You know, certainly what you've talked about, I think, is really meaningful in terms of what e-commerce and the shift in the COVID economy is doing for not only the industrial real estate business and, and what that could mean to not only Perlodius, but others, but also what it does to transportation demand. You know, the, the thought that, can, that these retailers will want to shift goods so that they're always there for consumers, so that consumers have them whenever they're ordering from an app or ordering at a store, I think is a you know is certainly something that we all can appreciate and get excited about. I do have one question for you. Uh, yeah, you know, I'll get one. The, so. <laughs> so, so one last question for you, Will. The 
e-commerce, uh, this this experience that's taking place right now has certainly benefited the largest players in the industry. But a lot of small retailers are struggling because they don't have the e-commerce expertise in-house or don't have the infrastructure to do what, you know, an Amazon or a Walmart can do. I'm, I'm curious, what is this? Do we see a bifurcation of the bigger gets bigger and the smaller, unfortunately, doesn't? Is that is that what this is going to end up looking like in the um, future? I mean, it's it's difficult to predict. I think the counter argument against that is you really look at some of the emergence of the D2C brands, um, Bonobos being one of the first ones that's very well known, but you can go across, and go across different industries and see these digitally native brands that came out and really launched into this new environment. Um, and those have been really successful and a lot of e-commerce growth is being driven by these digitally native brands. What's interesting is they generally are finding a cap when they get to a certain amount of revenues and let's say about 100 million revenues where they start expanding into brick and mortar because they're realizing that's also a big portion of where their customer base will be for growth. So I would say that it's more an evolution of retail that obviously an Amazon or Walmart is, is influencing it. But there are a lot of really successful new emerging companies that are, are just handling what's come out, whether it's social media or the, Insta, uh, the, the whatever the influencers are on Instagram, are opening up a new way that brands can interact with their customers, which is pretty exciting. Um, and there are a lot of really great companies out there that are figuring out how to do e-fulfillment and how to provide a service to customers that these brands can then offer. So it would be very difficult for a small brand to build out their own fulfillment network, but there are a lot of really cool providers out there that are providing that service for these companies to allow them to scale. Um, one of our portfolio companies, Flex, does a virtual network on, on, in this manner. So it's, I think, Craig, that it's, it's, there's a lot of change, and there's companies that have been in existence, and you can look at some of the bankruptcies that occur in 2020 to realize some of the models aren't working today. But there's a lot of emerging models that are working, and it's, it's pretty cool to watch. Yeah, I, for one, wasn't shocked by Payless's bankruptcy or Sears's <laughs> bankruptcy. I mean, these are, these are businesses that have felt like they were on, you know, have been dying for many years, unfortunately. But you, you, interesting, you mentioned people like Casper and Purple and Stitch Fix, that, you know, these sort of modern age DTC businesses have really, really done exceptionally well. And we've even seen companies in the casual clothing space uh, have, you know, the athleisure have, have done exceptionally well Whereas the Brooks Brothers, which sells, you know, uh, uh, work, uh, uh, form, you know, more business casual has, has suffered. It's just an interesting time. Uh, certainly a lot to unpack in this discussion uh, and others. Um, it's going to be interesting to, to see. And, Will, appreciate you coming on. You said you had one last question for me. I'd love to hear Yeah, I was going to ask you, out. from your perspective, I mean, how do you see e-commerce impacting how freight flows in trade and, and what I'll reverse it. I mean, what, what do you think is permanent versus what is um, a sign of where we are exactly today? And how, how would you answer the question you asked me? I don't know that I have all the answers. Uh, and, and a lot of it is, is happening so quickly. I mean, one thing I do know 
is that the freight economy, the, the physical goods movement, is doing exceptionally well in this market. I mean, trucking, we've been seeing it since, you know, we've seen an acceleration of volume really since mid-May. I mean, April was the low, but we saw the, the market start to really ramp in May and beyond, and it hasn't stopped. And I don't know where it stops. And the question that I think a lot of people are asking is, is this inventory flowing, you know, is this network issues? Is this inventory issues? There's a lot of reasons to be bullish. Uh, you know, it's import activity. The the ports are on fire. The railroads have instituted, you know, $5,000 surcharges uh, out of California to, to out of L.A. because they don't want more freight put on the rails for intermodal. Um, you're seeing, you know, import activity. You're seeing demand. You're seeing the government data. It seems like every day uh, on CNBC and, and on, you know, here on Freightways and Bloomberg, they're talking about, this economic government data where the government, the, the, the expectations, the economy is beating those numbers. And I think the economy is doing a lot better than traditional models would suggest around unemployment data because we're just in a different type of economy. And if you look at the unemployment, which is unfortunate for those that have been impacted, but a lot of those folks that are in unemployment, that are unemployed and getting government benefits, were you know were involved in parts of the economy that isn't really freight dependent. So they're you know working at restaurants, they're working in events or concerts and um, and and such. And so that that the you know that those parts of the economy are certainly offline, but the stuff that moves freight is not. And I think you see it in your warehouse demand data. We certainly see it in the freight data. And I just don't know, Will, if this is a if this is a new permanent fixture in demand, I don't think it's going to be this hot. Maybe it does. I don't know. Um, but I don't know how much of that volume is going to stay with us persistently or over time we start to lose. It's just it's anybody's guess is my opinion. It's actually an interesting question because when those parts of the economy reopen, they themselves are going to need transportation and logistics to some degree. It could even accelerate it on top now. Some of it will be a redistribution because what, what I'm eating at home, maybe we start eating more at restaurants again. Uh, but that's a pretty interesting question that it could actually accelerate even further because hospitality reopens and, and, and uh, hotels need to actually get replenished with their inventory. Yeah, it is interesting looking at your own spending. Like, just take your own example. I've been quarantined or we've been quarantined as a company and personally been quarantined. Uh, be, be, just because of personal decisions we've made. And, you know, I, I think about how much, how many miles I put on my car. You know, I'm lucky now to put 800 miles a month on my car, whereas, you know, in a pre-COVID environment, I was that was a weekly uh, type thing for me. And so the, 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 the change in spending, the change in costs, certainly dollars that were spent on concert tickets and sporting events, uh, eating out at restaurants, those dollars are no longer being spent. But I find that, you know, the UPS guy, the FedEx, you know, delivery person are here every day with four or five boxes that my wife and I have purchased. And so I, I, I do think on the front end, we'll see an acceleration of volume related to those reopening efforts. Certainly in this part of the country, we can, we hardly ever shut down, frankly, uh, unfortunately. And we're sort of, sort of paying that uh, lesson, but the the question will be: Once we reopen, how much of that spend that we're used to as consumers re, re you know resurfaces? I think it's anybody's guess, and and a lot to watch. Certainly need the data. Will I really appreciate you coming on? It's always fun to get into this conversation about the future. 
and, and, and frankly, a lot of stuff is happening. Uh, best of luck with Prologis Ventures. You guys are on the front end of seeing how technology can think about the future. Uh, and uh, really appreciate you coming on today. 